here to talk about a new story, a new episode, and a new place. But before that, I want to tell you guys thank you so much for enjoying what I'm doing, and hopefully uh, you guys will stay stay on board. You know, I'm trying to do the best I can here, switching some stuff up as we go, growing as I, as, as I can, you know, as best I can. And, uh, you know, you can help support the show and help it grow, man. Be a part of something really special here and always willing to have uh, people participate, man. And I know you guys got some crazy stories out there, so the more the merrier. Send those right over. Anything you got, just doing anything we can. This is uh, semi-comical. You know, we're not taking it all serious, but we're not definitely not going to make fun of uh, any of the victims or anybody that uh, was hurt throughout these crimes, right? Anybody who was really actually hurt through these crimes, and we're not going to make fun of how they were made, you know, how they were affected by these crimes. And now keep in mind, this is not specifically about murder. It's merely just about uh, crimes. And there's going to be drugs, there's going to be prostitution, there's going to be all kinds of racketeering, murder, you know, kidnapping, any of these crazy crimes that I can find. Really what I'm trying to start with here in the first few episodes is I really want to get some crimes that are just weird and coincidental and odd and you know we all love that show unsolved mysteries back you know back when it was still around robert stack you know amazing stuff amazing show i really even as a kid just when he would come out in his raincoat and talk about the crimes you were just intrigued and that's kind of the same idea i want to have here and i want to talk about those cases that people aren't talking about and the cases that are unsolved but i want to do it in an interesting way because it's really interesting for me you know, this is a show for you guys, but it is a, a show for me as well because I'm doing the research. I want to find out this information. It's very curious, you know. It's it's like I'm learning about it at the same time you are because I will take the information, I'll save it, and then I'll go back to it and record the episode because it's not as fun to know what's what the outcome is going to be. I like to be surprised just as well as you are, and it makes it more, like I said, it makes it more interesting, and I, I'm, I'm enjoying it, so hopefully you guys are. But today's episode, like I said, is going to be taking place in a little-known place that we like to call in the United States as Good Heart, Michigan. A lot of us know Michigan. A lot of us don't know Good Heart. And we're going to look into that right here before we actually get into the crime and everything that took place on this horrendous day. Goodhart, Michigan, it's a little town, very, very small town, in fact. In 1877, Goodhart's population was merely 100 people, with three-quarters of it being Native Americans. Uh, the little village actually had a school for Native American children, uh, two stores, and a Catholic church. There was a blacksmith, a doctor, and a post office. But by 1905, the entire tribe population had left. More businesses included a butcher shop, fish store, tavern, and shoe, uh, shoe shop, were also added, but nowadays there's only two, one or two stores actually left in this vicinity, in this area, this small town, very, very small town. Uh, Goodhart is actually located in Emmett County in Redmond uh, Township. It's southwest of Mackinac City and north of Potoski, and it's on the lake of, uh, it's on the border, the shoreline of Lake Michigan, looking out on Beaver Island. It's also located smack dab on the Tunnel of Trees Scenic Heritage Route. So obviously that, that does say something about its beauty. It's a very scenic, beautiful place. Very small as well. But we are not talking about 1877. We're talking about 1877 is when this place was obviously established. But we're talking about 1968. 
and what was going on in Goodhart, Michigan in 1968. A lot of interesting things, man. Let's talk a little bit more about Goodhart and its history. Now, because Goodhart is such a small place, we have to talk about the actual township that it's located in, and that is the Reedman Township. And it's a civil township of Emmett County, like we had mentioned. It's uh, in the U.S. state of Michigan. The population as of 2000, so 32 years since uh, the incident that we're actually focused on here today, uh, the population was only 493 people as of the year 2000. So you could imagine, you know, nearly 35 years prior to that, it had to be less. It's a summer destination, actually, for such famous people as Jim Abbott. He's a one-handed major league pitcher. Uh, famous for throwing a no-hitter for the New York Yankees, and Bob Seger. So the famous American singer, uh, Bob Seger, also has a place apparently out here in uh, Reedman T uh, Township. Like I said, it's a very scenic place, very beautiful, and it seems as if uh, rich people, not just rich, but <laughs> rich famous people are coming, purchasing property out here and spending uh, summers and vacationing out in this area. It's pretty interesting, man. Could you imagine running into Bob Seger or Jim Abbott out there in... Uh, Michigan or up there in Michigan it's nearly Canada it's very close to that uh, the Indians and the part of the tribe that actually were here before uh, knew the area as Crooked Tree in 1741 uh, Jesuits established a mission to the Native Americans and it was known as Apatawaiing uh, by 1823 the Jesuits had built the first structure here and the area was known as Middle Village uh, St. Ignatius uh, Church was destroyed by fire in 1889 and it was eventually rebuilt. There's some interesting facts about the area. Uh, Good, Heart, Good Heart is actually an un, unincorporated community in the township on the shore of Lake Michigan. It's on M119, about 13 miles north of Harbor Springs and 8 miles south of Cross Village. It was the center of the Ojibwe settlement under the leadership of Joseph Blackhawk and his brother Goodhart in the early 19th century. So it's named after the brother Goodhart, but it's spelled differently. It's This township is not spelled like good and then, you know, your physical heart. It's spelled like Kevin Hart, like H-A-R-T, Goodhart. It's kind of surprising that this that guy hasn't actually found a place up there just because of the his last name being so fitting. But let's talk about uh, what actually was going on and what the crime is like out there with such a small population. Okay, so as far as the website areavibes.com, they say, and they, they grade it with a, you know an actual grade, letters. Um, livability is actually a number, which is 52. I don't know if that's out of 100, I would imagine. Uh, cost of living is an A-, minus. so I don't know if that means it's great or if that means it's terrible. Same thing with, like, education is an F. So education's got to be terrible, right? So A-, minus cost of living's got to be great in Goodhart, Michigan. Uh, the housing is an F, which is strange. I don't understand. It's kind of contradictory. Uh, the amenities are C. Uh, C. Uh, crime is an F, employment is an F, and weather is an F. So the weather sucks, employment sucks, and so does crime. So the crime must be pretty bad here, and as far as I'm seeing with the numbers, they do seem to be a little strange. And I think this is per, this is obviously uh, as of the year 2000, I would imagine, somewhere around that time. I don't know. There's not actually any information as to when this was, you know, allocated. I would think that it has to do with you know, in the recent few years. Either way, as far as murder and heart is concerned, there's zero. Uh, there's 96.2 rapes. There's zero robberies. There's 62, 625 
uh, assaults, and that's per 100,000 people. So keep in mind, this is a very, very small percentage of people. So that number is obviously way higher for the simple fact that, because look, Hart has such a small population, the assault number for just that small town is 625. But per Michigan, the entire state, it's only 308. Does that make sense? Because it's such a smaller number. Anyways, uh, violent crime, as far as Hart is concerned, uh, 721. Burglary, 721. Theft, 7,355. So people are stealing shit out there in Hart, as it seems. It just doesn't seem like a, you know, it seems like a remote place to a certain extent. But I feel like there's still a population of people that have somehow ended up living there for a certain amount of time and it's became their place. That or because people know that it is, you know, pretty luxurious. Uh, people are going out there to vacation. Bob Seger, Jim Abbott. Are they assuming that there's stuff that they could rob? You know, that they could steal? Because obviously that's one of the bigger bigger numbers we're seeing here is theft, robbery, you know. But uh, if you want to move to Goodhart, Michigan and live amongst Bob Seger and Jim Abbott and, you know, possibilities of a bunch of crime, I found a four-bedroom, three-bathroom, 25,860-square-foot house on, on 3063 West Hazel Road for $179,000. And I'll tell you right now, for a four-bedroom, three-bath, uh, nearly 3,000-square-foot house, that's a fucking good deal. $179,000, that's fantastic. Um, I found another one on... Uh, it's a two-bedroom, one-bath, so smaller, you know, starter home. And oddly enough, this house is $20,000 more than the prior house. $199,000 for this house on uh, 4510 West Tyler Road in Goodhart. You know, half the size, easily half the size, and $20,000 more. So is it is it better real estate over there on uh, Tyler Road in comparison to Hazel Road? I don't know. I've not been that far up into Michigan in a long, long time. But I will say that this case is uh, pretty interesting in the in the idea because it is uh, pretty close to where I live. That's one of the other reasons I really wanted to look into this because it's interesting. It's a very intriguing case, but it is also uh, kind of close to home. You know, I'm very close to Michigan. I've been to Michigan many times in my lifetime and uh, going to look into this crime right now. It's crazy. So from the information that we've actually gathered, I feel like this isn't your atypical small town. This isn't your atypical little place, this uh, getaway. You know, in most cases you would feel like, uh, you know, everybody's ultra-friendly ultra and uh, cordial to everybody and just being uh, genuine. But from, from the st statistics that we have looked at so far, it feels like that's not the case. With this many people, there shouldn't be this higher rate of crime. And this untimely crime that we're going to talk about here shouldn't have happened. But let's get into that right now. Richard Robeson was a Detroit Magazine publisher. Uh, he evidently found out that an employee named Joseph Scolaro III had embezzled $60,000 from the company. It was speculated that the employee drove up from the Detroit from drove up from Detroit to Goodhart, which cannot be that far. I'm sure it's several hours, but he is supposedly the he was the main suspect in the actual crime. But Richard Robeson was a rich man. You know, he had money. He lived in Goodhart, which is said to have a lot of, you know, tourist attractions and people coming, not tourist attractions, but people coming out there to vacation. And it's a nice place like that. So obviously to live there took some sort of funds or just to be there. But the family was out 
on a vacation themselves in Goodhart. You know, they were vacationing, and this ultimately turns into what you would consider your modern-day horror film. You know, basically everything that takes place in this scene is what you would write to create a new uh, scary movie. Now, the the Robeson family murders is also referred to the good, as uh, the Good Heart Murders, which is obviously where this took place. Um, it was a mass murder, and the people that were actually the victims were uh, Richard Robeson, his wife Shirley Robeson, and their four children. Richie, Gary, Randy, and Susan. And it was on the night of June 25th, 1968. The upper middle class family from the metropolitan Detroit area of Lanthrop Village, Michigan, were shot and killed while vacationing in their Lake Michigan cottage just north of Goodhart, Michigan, near the Straits of Mackinac. This case actually remained unsolved after a 15-month investigation by the Michigan State Police and the Emmett County Sheriff's Office. Although, when the investigation was finalized in December of 1969, evidence led to one person, Joseph Raymond Scalaro III. He was an embezzling employee of Richard Robeson, supposedly taking $60,000 or more, and that ultimately giving him a reason to, uh, not a reason, I won't say that, but a motive in his head. Uh, The murders began with five gunshots aimed at Richard Robeson. They were fired through a rear window from a twenty-two caliber semi-automatic rifle. The murderer then entered the cottage through an unlocked door and killed the remaining five people with shots to the head from the from a 25 caliber semi-automatic pistol. So the perpetrator had two weapons on them. Uh, Susan and Richard Robeson were also bludgeoned with a hammer, which was found at the murder scene. That's horrific, man. Already to get shot, and then to also be bludgeoned with a hammer, it's just overkill. You know what I mean? This person definitely didn't want any survivors. Uh, Shirley Robeson's body was intentionally posed so that when the crime scene was discovered, it would lead the police to think that the crime was part of a sexual act. So obviously she was splayed somehow, you know, for the police to come in and see her, you know, for that, that, that to be some sort of a message or a leading point for the, you know, the investigating officers. Uh, bloody footprints on the floor led investigators to conclude that one person committed the murders. The bodies were not discovered for 27 days and conditions at the murder scene resulted in advanced decomposition of the bodies. That's horrific, man. 27 days, but then again, it just shows you how small this place was. This town had to be very small for people not to be... I, I don't know, maybe that's the case. Maybe because it was so small, it, it made it more difficult for them to notice anything, or you know, should it be the opposite? Should it be the fact that it is so small, they should have noticed more? But then again, with these people only coming and going to vacation you're going to see a lot of faces that you don't recognize a lot of time, you know, randomly. It's going to be sporadic. It's going to be sparse. You're not going to constantly see the same faces. It's just not going to happen. At any point, you could run into Bob Seger. Now, because this uh, Joseph Scalaro III was the main suspect, how they speculated this happened was that he had drove up from Detroit, killed the whole family so nobody would find out that he had embezzled the funds. And then he actually drove back before Richard had a chance to call authorities. Scalaro was actually the main suspect, and he actually went on to fail two lie detector tests. Uh, Just before police were ready to apprehend him, Scalaro actually wrote out a suicide note saying that he was innocent 
and shot himself in the head. Now, that's a rare thing. That's a really rare thing to me. I, I did actually just listen to a recent story about a similar situation where actually a man was put in prison for 16 years while his brother remained on the streets. But it was the brother who actually admitted to the fact that he did the crime and set his other brother free via suicide note. You know, he said he had also tried to kill himself multiple times, you know, and then he wrote in the suicide note that he actually did the crime. But here it's the opposite thing. You know, the man that people are speculating that actually killed this person or family, sorry, the person that killed this family was innocent and then he killed himself anyways. So that's really weird because I don't feel like that happens very often. But I guess if you're going to run away and you still don't want to be considered, you know, the prime suspect, you're going to say that you're innocent even at your, even at your last, you know, final moments. Uh, even though there were other suspects, including the carpenter who worked for the Robesons, uh, no charges were actually ever filed and the case still remains unsolved. To this day, though, the Goodhart community is still a sleepy little place where tourists love to visit, which I find really strange. You know, I, I know that it's beautiful, but I don't know. I just don't feel like there's that much there. You guys can go online and look at Goodhart, Michigan, and look at the photos. I'll post some on social media, but look at the photos, and you can just see how desolate this place kind of is. Um, you should actually check it out, though. See what you think. You know, take some photos. You can go camping there, maybe even a little crime investigating because apparently it seems to be pretty robust in this uh, small area. But a strange case nonetheless, because like I said, today, still, nobody's been arrested. And this is, you know, 30 plus years later. Uh, by the actual second week of the investigation, though, it had be that had actually begun on July 22nd, 1968, uh, the Michigan State Police and Emmett County authorities suspected Richard Robeson's employee, Joseph R. Scalar III, who was 30 years old, as the prime suspect, he had not been seen or heard from for more than 12 hours on the day of the murders, and his alibis for the time period all proved invalid. So they were most definitely looking hard at this guy who eventually does kill himself, still claiming his innocence. So ultimately, if he was the perpetrator, you're never going to find out. We're never going to find out from here further, you know, unless he wasn't. Which, you know, that could still be, that's fully plausible. Uh, he had also purchased uh, both of the murder weapons determined by police forensic tests to have been used in the Robeson family murders, specifically the 25 caliber Jetfire automatic Beretta pistol and the 22 caliber AR-7 semi-automatic rifle. The four uh, 22 caliber spent shells that were found at the crime scene, forensically compared by ballistic markings to several 22 caliber evidence shells known to have been fired by Scalaro at a family range in 1967. The two sets of the shells were found to be an exact match. Although Scalaro claimed to have given this weapon away, a neighbor had told police that he had seen the 22 caliber AR-7 AR rifle in Scalaro's house not long not long before the Robisons were killed. The Robisons were killed. So you got a neighbor, you know, an eyewitness seeing this weapon in Scalaro's house. What you'd think, you know, hello. But uh, Scalaro's 25 caliber Beretta automatic pistol, which he also claimed to the to police to have given to uh, given away prior to, to uh, June June 25th um, was actually matched forensically in similar ca uh, similar characteristics to the a second identical 25 caliber Beretta produced by police on the second day of the murders. 
so basically what they're saying is both of these weapons fully matched the two uh, weapons that Scolaro actually owned. Uh, both guns had been purchased by Scolaro on the same day, February 2nd, 1968. Also found at the murder scene were several Sako 25 caliber spent cartridges, which are a rare 1968 Finnish brand sold only for a limited time uh, a few weeks in Michigan through January and February prior to the murders. It was documented by investigators that one of the actual few Sako ammunition purchasers in Michigan had been Joseph Scolaro III. Scolaro's statements that he had given away both of the missing uh, murder weapons and the Sako ammunition prior to the 25th of June uh, proved invalid. You know, they obviously found evidence that said, hey man, you didn't give that shit away. Uh, they were actually one more part of his elaborate scheme to obstruct the investigation of the crime. Uh, during the lengthy murder investigation, it was determined by a forensic accountant that more than $60,000 was missing from the two combined businesses of Richard Robeson. The two Robeson businesses had been left in the care of, a su of the suspect, Scalaro, prior to the murders, so he had control of the assets, man. Uh, the two investigating police agencies involved in the case presented their combined evidence case report to the jura, uh, jura, jurisdictional prosecution on December 17, 69. The detailed report implicated Joseph Scalaro as the sole perpetrator of the mass murder crime. In mid-January 1970, Emmett County Prosecutor Donald C. Nogle, or Noggle, N-O-G-G-L-E, uh, decided not to bring charges against Scalaro at the time, citing that the two missing murder weapons and the absence of his fingerprints from the crime scene. So basically this, uh, you know, is, is uh prosecutor this prosecutor doesn't want to put the charges on this man who eventually comes to uh killing himself and still saying that he didn't do this but during the course of investigation the suspect scolaro failed two lie detector tests a third test was judged inconclusive as to the truth so there he is sitting there behind that uh you know behind that polygraph thing that we all have seen so well and he fails twice how do you fail twice were the same questions asked if the same questions were asked then you already know that the guy's you know the guy's the main suspect he did this um, it was also noted that he tried to deceive the polygraph interviewers in his pre-test interviews. So he's trying to lie the whole time. Why do that if you have nothing to hide? Ugh. Four years later, a newly elected chief prosecutor in Oakland County, uh, L. Brooks Patterson, believed the Robeson crimes had originated within his jurisdiction and reopened the prosecution. When the prime suspect Scalero learned of the impending charges and arrests, he committed suicide on March 8, 1973. Scalaro left behind a type, uh, typewritten note on which he wrote, and I quote, I am a liar, which he spelled wrong, a cheat, and a phony. That's what he says, and he says that with a list of people he had swindled in multiple business schemes, uh, he then added a handwritten note to his mother on the same sheet of paper saying, and I quote, I had nothing to do with the Robesons, I'm a liar, spelled correctly, but not a murderer. I'm sick and scared. God and everyone, please forgive me. End quote. That's crazy. Uh, since Michigan law does not permit an open murder case to be officially closed, the suicide of the prime suspect, Scolaro, placed the case in an inactive file. Thus, many questions remain unanswered. Over many years, other crime theories have surfaced, but to date, none have ever been substantiated. That's crazy to know, man. Like I said, being in such a small place with a minimal population, how how could something like this occur? And then you find you find out that you have no evidence. 
you haven't you don't have enough evidence to prosecute somebody or the prosecutor does, just doesn't want to prosecute somebody it's like you got to get somebody in there on trial man you have evidence pointing towards somebody he needs to be questioned a little more thoroughly because children died you know not just adults not just a wealthy business owner his whole family that's more of a reason to get you know let's fucking figure this out it wasn't one person you know there was obviously more motive to this than than meets the eye right to go in there and you know oh i embezzled 60 grand and i have to kill you know a family of six people that's crazy uh, those who actually personally knew Mr. Robeson were quoted in the two police reports on file saying that they had never known a better family man, friend, or business partner. So he's a good dude, you know, as, as they all tend to be. The victims always tend to be, you know, relatively living on the right side of the law. You know, this guy was just on vacation with his family. And then this stuff happens, and they actually say it's pretty much just like you would, like I said, you would, uh, you couldn't write a better film script. You know, with the situation that happened here, you got the overkill, you know, they, the guy comes in, he's firing from outside, comes in, continues firing, and then proceeds to use a hammer on everybody else. Like, that whole house must have been mayhem. So how does it go 27 days before anybody notices anything? And when they do notice something, it's merely the smell. It's the scent, the stench. That's how long the people had been in there, the whole family. That's absurd, especially if you lived anywhere near those people or you were vacationing anywhere near those people. You would have saw them. You would have saw action, you know, something going on, people coming in and out, people leaving, people being in the yard, cars, somebody checking mail, whatever. Because, yeah, they're on vacation, so what are they going to be doing other than being in the house and going around places, being seen in public? But yet nobody nobody's able to get enough evidence to put somebody up for prosecution. It's crazy. So then you have to sit here and wonder, if it wasn't Scalaro, if it was somebody else, that person's still alive. That person's still out there. You know, maybe not alive, but that person was still out there for many years. You know, at least 30-something years. They could still be alive. It's very possible. Who knows, though? And that's what makes it intriguing is the fact that this is like a horror movie. You know, family stressing over the last few weeks of uh, work and school and now it's time for vacation they take their vacation out to a place that a lot of people don't even vacation at it's not going to be hella crowded it's not disney world you know it's nothing like that it's merely a, a, a small place up in michigan by the beach not to be bothered you know a sense of uh, solace you know you get to to relax and everybody gets to relax and spend time with the family and do those kind of things. I'm sure you'd probably cook your own meals and stuff like that because I'm sure there's not many restaurants. Even nowadays, like I said, there's only one or two stores. So you can only imagine there's only one or two restaurants. So it's a lot of family time, I'd imagine. But instead, somebody decides to start firing a weapon through the window, you know, at their father, and then, you know, havoc ensues. But yet, the neighbors, I don't know, there should be more evidence, especially if the guy's shooting from outside the house into the house if that's really what took place then somebody should have seen somebody outside of these uh you know this family's house that's crazy crazy but that's our story man that is a uh, good heart michigan check that out man another unsolved case i didn't expect that to really happen i didn't expect it to be unsolved honestly i kind of went in here uh with blinders on 
But it is unsolved, man, just like the last one, just like Houston, Texas, unsolved. You know, this is a lot, a lot more years later than Houston, Texas, but nonetheless, still not solved, still no answers. That's kind of how it goes, though. It's kind of how it's been. There's some of them that we can get, you know, answers for, and then there's some that we can't. But it always begs the question, is that person, the perpetrator, the criminal, the killer, are they still out there? Hey guys, are you tired of those ho-hum podcasts where people sit down and talk for over an hour and make great jokes and have a fun time? Well, me either. But here, at the 9-Minute Podcast, you get all the things that you get from an hour and a half conversation from somebody else's podcast in 9 minutes. We are known as the shortest podcast in podcast history. I don't even know if you can call this a podcast. Doesn't matter. It's hosted by me, Patrick Michael. And here at the 9 Minute Podcast, I discuss all my favorite things in video and audio form. Usually after I go on a crazy rant saying a bunch of nothing. But you can find this show on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other major podcast platforms. Subscribe today or tomorrow, but definitely subscribe. Either way, follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at 9 Minute Podcast. That's the number 9 and Minute Podcast. Thank you guys so much for checking out the show. Bye-bye.